Welcome to Elevating Voices, Ending Hunger. I'm Amy McReynolds, your host and the Chief Equity and Programs Officer at Feeding America. Elevating Voices, Ending Hunger is a series of conversations with everyday leaders who are disrupting the systems of inequity that drive food insecurity across this country. We acknowledge that many of the systems that drive food insecurity are deeply rooted in inequity. As solutions are developed to address food insecurity, we must listen and learn from people with lived experience to ensure that those solutions don't create additional harm and perpetuate injustice. On today's episode, we're focusing on the importance of sharing power and building equitable partnerships in ending hunger. Nicole Robinson is the Chief Partnership and Programs Officer at Greater Chicago Food Depository, and Melvin Thompson is the Executive Director of Andaleo Institute, a community development organization located in Chicago's Southside neighborhood of Washington Heights. Washington Heights is a historic neighborhood that originally built up around Chicago's railroads in the 1800s. Throughout the years, its community has stayed vibrant and strong. But like many predominantly African-American neighborhoods in Chicago, years of discriminatory policies and systemic underfunding have hit hard. Its residents face documented health disparities and disproportionately high levels of unemployment. If you live in Washington Heights, you're statistically more likely to live a shorter life than the average Chicagoan. And this was true before the pandemic. As COVID-19 hit, Nicole and the Greater Chicago Food Depository approached Melvin about the possibility of creating a long-term partnership to meet the increased demand in the community. I think I'd like to kick off the conversation maybe with a question to you, Nicole. So Greater Chicago Food Depository has been serving the city for over 40 years. What are some of the unique challenges that you find in fighting hunger in Chicago? Uh, Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me today. And, uh, you know, yes, Chicago is a unique community. We have been at this for over 40 years and uh, we've grown tremendously in that that time frame. Uh, At one point, we were a food bank that distributed 500,000 pounds of food. And now in in a post pandemic, as we continue to navigate to pandemic, we're at 120 million. And you know, that growth uh, is a reflection of the need. Uh, it's a reflection of people that support this work, but it's also a reflection of some some deeper, complex problems uh, in Chicago communities, and including the food system, where we have a legacy of, you know, racial injustice and policies that over time have shaped how much income and wealth people have. Uh, it's shaped agriculture Uh, It's shaped whether or not we have grocery stores and communities. Uh, It's left us with some unaddressed trauma. Um, So it's so complex. And the disparities have just gotten deeper and wider in Chicago, where, you know, there's a 17 year life expectancy gap between black and brown Mm -hmm. communities and, and white neighborhoods. You know, when I look at the data at the food and at the food depository, you know, in some communities, there's, there's rates of food insecurity in the 30 to 50 percent range. 
Wow. You know, people don't have incomes that support the cost of living. Uh, there was double digit unemployment before COVID. We talk about it now and we're shocked that there's double digit unemployment, but there was really a silent pandemic before that. Economists say that, you know, the, the economic stress uh, has been the leading indicator of what's happening in the pandemic. But we've had a year of racial conversations about racism. Mm-hmm. And some would say that's the leading cause. So, um, you know, I love Chicago, um, but it's complicated. But I feel like, you know, those are a lot of, of what the things that I see. Nicole, I'm, I'm listening to you and my jaw dropped, right? Just hearing some of the statistics that you just shared, right? About what's happening in the city of Chicago and why that creates such a unique landscape and challenge for people who are living in the city, uh, black and brown people in particular who are living in the city. So I'm curious, I know that the Food Depository has been evolving its approach to working with communities that are experiencing food insecurity. And I think that also includes how you're engaging in community partnerships to address issues around food insecurity and racial inequity. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's happening there? Uh, absolutely, Amy. And if the I, I for, forgive me if I sounded a little sobering with that data because that kind of rolls off my tongue. Right, please, please be sobering. I think it's important that those statistics are shared. So thank you for bringing those to the conversation. Yeah, but the the silver lining in all of this because it is we may not all see it, but the silver lining I see is you know how it's all transformed us as individuals and institutions. And there's a set of values that the food depository brings to this work that I personally bring to this work um, that I think is going to get us to better. One being centering communities most impacted by the work. So I ran through a list of statistics, but those are people who live in neighborhoods, who live in homes and, and walk blocks and ride public transportation and gather together and, um, I need to center the work on them. We need to center the work on them. We need to ground our partnerships and think about them differently and expand the definition of who it means to be a partner. Uh, we're, we're a food bank and we have a, a legacy of partnering with um, a narrow list of organizations, you know, who serve as food pantry partners. But we know that there's a, a dynamic, vibrant group of partners um, equally committed to a broader set of issues around justice. So not just food justice, but economic justice, housing justice, health justice. Uh, And those partners care about this work too. So I think, you know, those values informed our work. And what that led us to is a set of really, you know, interesting transformative commitments, things that the food depository had never done before Mm -hmm. uh, in our history. And it was all in the spirit of creating a, you know, strengthening the food system, because what we learned during the pandemic is kind of how fragile things can be. You know, what what can happen in the blink of an eye uh, when our structures kind of don't support us in the way that we need them to. So what that resulted in uh, us doing is investing $2.6 million in 26 organizations across Chicago, all Black and Latino-led organizations. 
uh, some of which uh, would, would open new pantries. And, and Melvin is one of those partners uh, that we're excited about. You know, the investment is one thing, but and that's the what, but the how is what was different. You know, yes, trusting yes. partners who know the community really well. So when I talk about the blocks in the neighborhoods, they know Miss Jefferson in the neighborhood and what she needs and what she's thinking about, whether or not, you know, someone's checking on her. So I think we wanted to empower the organizations that have that level of wisdom and insight and have the know-how and just say, tell us your vision, tell us how you want to bring it to life and we will support you. And that's very different because we're an organization that just structurally is an organization built on policy, process, structure. That's our strength, actually. But it, it, we had to sort of um, release that a little bit, yeah. release that a little bit in the spirit of honoring those values around power and trust. And how do we actually build up community in a way that, you know, there isn't a need for a pantry one day. Mm-hmm. Nicole, this this question that you ask around, tell us your vision is a very powerful one. And, and Melvin, maybe I, I can turn to you, sir. I would... Um, Love it if you could first share with us a little bit about your community. Tell me about Washington Heights. And then I'm also just curious if if you can also share what Nicole is sharing. Does that resonate with you? Wow. Well, thanks for having me uh, here, Amy. This is a a privilege and a pleasure. Um, Everything she said, I was so busy trying to write notes of everything that Nicole said um, resonates with me. Um, Just a little bit about the Washington Heights community. Um, Sure. Uh, It's located on the far south side of Chicago. You can find it roughly along the 95th Street corridor. Um, And it's a very strong, historically stable, middle-class, predominantly African-American community. It also contains a low-rise public housing development within that space. And one of the unfortunate um, parts of that is that that community is very much insulated from the rest of this middle-class, stable community. And that in itself creates a real dynamic, um, even with people who reflect you know, the same population. And so the complexities of our issues aren't all monolithic. I mean, it's, you know, we have some of the highest home ownership rates in the entire city of Chicago. And when I discovered that a few years ago with this report that uh, a regional planner put together for us, I said, wow, I mean, we need to be looking at our communities through the stronger lens, the asset rich anchors, instead of looking at the lack all of the time. Right. And so, you know, that's the, the kind of like the soapbox that I, that I perched myself on, on the things that are positive in our community. Um, our organization, the Andaleo Institute is birthed from a very strong uh, African-American church that sits adjacent to that public housing development that I mentioned, uh, Trinity, yes. Trinity United Church of Christ. This month, since it's April, we're celebrating our 60th year in that community. 
So we are rooted uh, in social just social and economic and environmental justice. And so for us um, to partner with an organization such as the Food Depository that's been around 40 years, you know, and show us the kind of deference that they have. You know, no one asks the small organization what your vision is, <laughs> right? Uh, that that's that is a rarity. But what I'm finding um, are organizations that are typically not found in those spaces changing their narrative to defer to organizations that are on the ground because the structural systems that, that Nicole alluded to are what they're more comfortable with. But in order to really move the needle, I think what the pandemic has done has really shown a light uh, on the situation. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's commonly said in our communities that, you know, when the rest of the country catches a cold, ours catches pneumonia, right? And, and so, and so, and so in our community, we've got a severe case of pneumonia going on. And, and so what it has done from a silver lining um, perspective is just illuminated how bad the patient is right. <laughs> it, it's, it's really and, and as strong as our community is, we're one paycheck away. We're one pandemic away from being, you know, into oblivion. Right. And so the timing of this partnership to see that emergency food distribution is not going to outlast the need, the growing need that we're seeing across the country. And so the permanency of, of, of food and healthy food is endemic to the survival and whatever potential we have to thrive in these communities um, has to be um, in a partnership such as this. So Melvin, let, let me ask you, I mean, you, you start talking about the partnership and I know when we spoke earlier, you talked about the fact that Washington Heights is considered a food desert, but mm -hmm. you had been living there and you didn't even know like that it was officially <laughs> considered a food desert. So what yeah. is it, how does it feel to um, uncover it or learn about sort of uh, data or statistical proof yeah. of what I imagine you and others in your neighborhood must have been feeling for quite some time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I think Nicole mentioned the word sobering, <laughs> sobering validation. That that's what mm. I would uh, categorize. That I remember the researcher, a Chicago-based researcher here, Mary Gallagher, really popularizing that term. Maybe around 2011, 12, and I, I had never heard food desert. Um, I never heard that term and then realized that what we were uh, getting ourselves accustomed to when grocery stores were leaving our neighborhoods probably two decades ago, we were actually in the throes of this emerging food desert that had never been given a name because it had slowly become part of the fabric of our community. And so 
jumping in our cars and driving outside, you know, four or five, 10 miles to our favorite grocery store became the norm. <laughs> so it wasn't until, um, you know, we, we placed the name and then we learned uh, just a few years ago when we were applying for USDA grants to support our church's farmer's market that we were, in fact, designated by the U.S. government as a food yeah. desert. And I'm like, why didn't they tell us? What, you know, <laughs> come, come right. share that information and tell us. And why do we have to apply for grant money? Just come give it to us because you know better than we do that we're, you know, experiencing um, a lack of access to things that, yes. you know, the kind of sustenance that we need. And so then you get all of this follow-up research that starts to tell you as a result of these food deserts, we're living, our lifespans are way far shorter than our counterparts in neighborhoods just 10 or 15 miles away from us, right? That's and, so, right. And, so, and so it's just, it's more and more research about the gloom and doom about, you know, what's going on in these communities, but no solution-based research, Right. Right, yeah. right. And Mel yeah. Melvin, that remind I mean, just to that point, right? You talked about how the community is designated a food desert, but you had shared a story about dialysis centers. Yeah. Oh community. my goodness. You know, one of the multiple partnerships that we have with uh, health institutions and academic uh, researchers is our partnership with Northwestern Medicine. And we were connected uh, through the Center for Community Health. Um, to uh, a fantastic doctor, Dr. Danae Simpson, who is the lone African-American female kidney transplant surgeon in the state of Illinois. And wow. we got connected because um, our partners at Northwestern would hear me, you know, ad nauseum talking about the need for a grocery store and healthy food. The first time I I had a chance to talk to Dr. Simpson. She shared with me this over this overlapping map that she created of low to moderate black and brown communities that are designated as food deserts, right? And then she overlays that with this this preponderance of kidney and dialysis centers that just are pervasive in those areas. So low in, low income food deserts and kidney dialysis centers all fitting like a glove in this map. And it completely blew me away. And when I asked her, well, what is the underlying reason for why that fits together so, so, you know, to make that perfect storm. Um, yes. And and she said, it's lack of nutrition. Melvin, it's, it's, it's very easy. Um, and that's why um, the partnership with Dr. Simpson is so instructive because she is a champion for nutrition education. We're trying to place healthy food in our community. And so rather than Melvin standing on the soapbox alone, he's got the science to back it up. As you um, said earlier, right? Another sobering validation yes. in seeing that visual in that way. Nicole, I, I'd love to hear from you about 
your partnership with Melvin and Andaleo Institute. I know it's relatively new since the pandemic. Why Andaleo and Melvin, right? <laughs> and why this community specifically? Well, Amy, it, it might be obvious after just listening to Melvin. <laughs> why Melvin? Why Andaleo? <laughs> you know, uh, the, the reality is, that, and Melvin said it right, He's he, Andaleo is connected to church community, Trinity United Church of Christ. Um, and they were one of several black and brown led institutions that during the height of the pandemic. So back to May 2020, where, you know, our, our sort of all of our heads were about to explode about what was happening and how we were going to respond to the need. Uh, they stepped up and I can remember calling people during the pandemic and saying, Hey, I don't. I know you don't normally do this, but your institution is in a high need community of, of which Andalea was, uh, and we need help. And we need help setting up these pop up food distributions. And I can remember asking the church, you know, I just need you to do it for six weeks. Start this in May. Do it for six weeks and, and them along with several other organizations. That's what I need. What wound up happening is a commitment that lasted through Thanksgiving of 2020 um, because the need was so great. Um, but the commitment was there um, and it was a selfless commitment because it was still during that time of shelter in place, um, restrictions on where we could go. It, you know, communities were exposing themselves. So I think we were grateful to that. I think what happened is sort of this inspiration between us and all of the partners, including Andaleo, and, and some of the values, the impact that came out of that partnership inspired us to go forward with this idea of, you know, basically we had an RFP and we said, you know, we invited organizations like Andaleo to, to again, tell us your vision. Uh, where do you want it to be? What architect do you want to use? Uh, you know, how do you want young people engaged? What paint do you want on the wall? I mean, we, we said, you know, tell us what you want. And, um, you know, that is evolving. Andaleo is one of the partners who, who stepped up. And I think what's interesting about Andaleo and some of the other partners is they are social justice inst institutions. So before yes. the pandemic, before George Floyd, they were all acutely aware of the inequities, um, just as, as Melvin talked about. They were focused on public policies to help reduce the wealth divide. They were focused on how to connect community to employment opportunities. Um, and I think in a pre-pandemic world, probably wouldn't have thought about a food pantry and a food <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And so I think we both had a moment where we said, you know what, we can work together um, and this is just the beginning. So, yeah. What What did you think about this opportunity, Melvin? Why did you decide to engage? Because the the, the moment was a time for pivoting. Uh, it wasn't in our wheelhouse. Um, I, if you had asked me <laughs> um, just a few minutes ago about a, a food pantry, I would have given you a strange look. But you know, you saw the need, the, the shelter in place. Um, there had to be something different that we needed to do as an organization. You know, I've told my staff many times um, over the last several months that there's no way we can still be the same organization we were before the pandemic. 
right? So there's a different need now. Um, this is still connected to the health conscious corridor, which is part of our mission, which is our vision. And so it was an opportunity that actually presented itself ahead of schedule, uh, right? Um, mm. and, but we were prepared and we had a backbone of a church with 10,000 members and 70 different ministries and an ongoing food share ministry that's been operational for at least 30 years that already knew kind of like the lay of the land. And then when the idea arose to expand this and, and create more permanency, I really thought that this could be a beacon in the first iteration of that access to healthy foods in our community. So, you know, sometimes you, you can plan a lot of things and then things that are unplanned come in just at the right time and, and actually bolster what you're already doing. Yes, and it sounds like you all had already done a lot of the groundwork and the foundation to evaluate this opportunity and, and see how it fit in. So, Yeah, very much so. Yep, very much so. Very much so. So, Melvin, I know, you know, sometimes engaging with a new partner or a large funding partner can unintentionally bring harm to a community. So I, I'm curious, how do you involve community members in that process. I mean, you talked about Washington Heights. How do you involve all the community members from different um, areas that need support in that process? Great question. We have engaged in a process called community engaged research, which is nothing more than engaging as a community with health institutions, academic researchers, and in that uh, sharing information, sharing the particulars of our particular community that might be a little different from the neighboring community, right? And so having Andaleo be kind of the liaison um, to that engagement. And then most important, having researchers and health academic institutional people reflect the communities that they're coming into um, because we focus in three areas at Andaleo, health, education, and community development. There's a, there's a, there's a line that our, our, our pastor emeritus used to say, you can't be what you can't see. And so, you know, mm -hmm. to, to have research epidemiologists that look and reflect the communities that they're serving some of that is new to community members to even see uh, people in these positions. So there's a value laden um, aspect to this that goes beyond the information. It's, it's just having a researcher come in and be able to tell their story to communities that are very similar to theirs. And so I saw that opportunity to engage these health professionals, and I was very careful to let them know that the deference that you show to the community will garner you the trust that is missing yes. um, from these communities. And rightfully so, if you look at history of medicine in, 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 in black and brown communities, right? There's a, there's a distrust. And so, you know, who, who am I to bring researchers in the mm -hmm. community um, with the audacity to say these people 
will we'll at least listen um, and, 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 and hear your stories um, and try to relate them to the science. And so we've been extremely successful in bringing those kind of partnerships, everything from prostate cancer uh, uh, among African-American men with the University of Illinois at Chicago, pharmacy deserts that now exist in our community uh, with the University of Illinois at Chicago, uh, mental health and racism um, and the impact on African-Americans. I mean, just a, a whole litany of different issues that we typically have no voice in. Right. We, we typically have no voice. And so what these researchers have thoughtfully done is not come in with an agenda, a top down. Here's what we you know, here's what we think. Better than that, it's this is what we think we heard from you. Mm -hmm. Right. And, mm -hmm. and so based on what we thought we heard from you, here are some things for you to consider. And so we kind of act as a bridge. Our, our community organization acts as a bridge to this population that has never been necessarily trusted, over-researched, <laughs> overly researched. Um, and underserved. And underserved, right? So lots of stuff yes. on the shelf, um, but no solutions based on that, on that research. And so I heard that initially when we started to do this. Well, Melvin, is this going to be just another, you know, people swoop in, get all our information, then we never hear from them again. And so being cognizant of that, I was very careful to make sure that there were follow ups. So we'll do a partnership grant with an entity and then we'll follow that up with a research grant partnership um, to show the community, OK, this is what you told us. And this is now what we'd like to research, what you told us, right? It, it, it's, you start to build that bridge, right? And then there may be young people that aspire to serve their own communities and are inspired by the people that they see from a UIC or Northwestern Medicine or a American Heart Association. And so it has an, a real just immeasurable uh, impact than we actually know. And that's why community engaged research undergirds all three of our programs. Melvin, I heard so much in there. I heard one that representation matters, right? Having diverse folks who are representative of the populations living in communities is very important. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, uh, building cultural sensitivity, building trust, what I heard you describe was a way to build partnership with community, right? Not to come in and do to, sure. but to learn from sure. and build Absolutely. with, right? And the transparency in that process. Absolutely. So it sounds like that's something that I hope we can see more communities engaging in, right? Bringing that voice to the table. Yes. This question will be for both of you, Nicole and Melvin. And again, Greater Chicago Food Depository, more than a 40-year history, Andaleo Institute rooted in 60 years of history in the community. I, I want you to close your eyes for a moment and imagine it's 10 years from now. So a decade from now, it's April, 2031. What is it that you see happening in Washington Heights and the city of Chicago from an equity perspective? What's different? What's changed? 
what what's happening, maybe what's not happening any longer. What what do you see ten years from now? What do you hope for? Ooh, wow. Uh, <laughs> the vision is a health conscious corridor. The mission is to revitalize our 95th Street corridor, the two mile stretch that, by the way, intersects with five different communities, four different wards, right? And so if we can create the kind of health conscious corridor that is undergirded with health partners, then we're going to be doing something that I don't think is, that I think is unprecedented on the south side of, of the city and will contribute to a complete renaissance that is actually built around a major transit station that we've just had completed over the last two years that is poised for an amazing $2.3 billion extension farther south. And so we're literally ground zero for development. And so we're excited to have strong, strong partners. And, and what I see along that corridor are other like-minded entities that also have the same kind of reverence and respect uh, for those health partners and those organizations that uh, contribute to the social good that want to set up shop there, right? We're seeing a pandemic that is going to see a lot of businesses not reopen in the downtown central business district. Here's a wonderful opportunity that 10 years from now, some of those businesses have taken a chance and relocated into the neighborhoods that they're seeing all of this revitalization. So I read somewhere if if your if your vision doesn't isn't it doesn't scare you, then it's not big enough. And and I'm scared every day. <laughs> I'm scared every day because I see uh, the impossible um, possible over the next 10 years. Yes. Well, Melvin, I tell you, I had my eyes closed and I have been on 95th and I can imagine that corridor revitalized. Thank you for sharing that very clear vision. Nicole, what about you? As you think about the city of Chicago and the work that the Food Depository is doing, what what do you see happening 10 years from now? Yeah, I I mean, I I hope for one, I, I want my hope. I'm placing my bets on Melvin's vision. I want his vision to come true. Yes. But um, there are 77 neighborhoods in Chicago, and there are 40 of them that the food depository, um, we look at the data around, you know, some of those statistics around unemployment and food insecurity. And they're at the top of our list because they have the highest rates of disparity across Mm -hmm. all of those issues. And I want, I hope that their vision comes true too. And I think part of it is, is healing. Like communities have experienced a lot of trauma. Like we, we take for granted some of those statistics and the trauma that comes from that, uh, experiencing microaggressions of racism when you go to the store, when you're at work, when you're at school, um, feeling the weight of it when you learn that your neighborhood is a food desert. Um, Some people call it food apartheid when there's a proliferation of um, fast food restaurants. So you feel like 
you know, people over time have felt like they didn't matter. So I think my hope for all of the communities is that, you know, they feel seen, they feel heard, um, that they get some sense of healing around that. Mm. I hope that, you know, you guys mentioned, you know, harm, that that we are on a track where all of the policies that we develop that that sort of create community, they're not policies that take us in the wrong direction. Right. They're the policies that move us forward uh, and that communities achieve economic justice. Because when we think about, you know, why people are food insecure, uh, it's rooted in economic justice. It's rooted in racial justice. So I know that's a lot to want for communities in 10 years. But I know that that's what that's what people need, because just like the plan that Melvin described, all 40 of those communities, many of them have a a vision similar. It might be that they want farmers markets in their community. Uh, It might mean that they they want a park where kids can play and there's no violence. There's not a crossfire from shots. They're all things that people want. uh, And I want them all to come true. And part of what institutions like the Food Depository can do is, again, support organizations like Melvin, support their quality of life plans, uh, that they have to improve their communities and, and really make all of their dreams come true and then make our institutions accountable. Um, because, again, part of why we're here is because of what we've been comfortable doing, what we've normalized around how we engage with community and really just changing that um, so that how we act now, this idea around trust, sharing power, let's normalize that. So that we're not having this kind of conversation. And can I just add just one quick thing? Just if if anything, we're not looked upon through the lens of a desert, but an oasis of fertile ground for opportunity in in the whole belief system in our community that you, you've got to get people to believe that things can change. Well, uh, Melvin, I think you said it well. Uh, Melvin and Nicole, thank you so much for this conversation that has been both sobering about the realities of what's happening today, what has been happening, and inspirational about how uh, new ways of sharing power and investing in communities And to your point, Melvin, having a belief about what can be different and then acting on that belief, a vision around that. Uh, Thank you so much for this conversation today. Thank you so much for having us. So much. Thank you, Melvin. Thank you, Amy. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Elevating Voices, Ending Hunger. If you enjoyed our conversation today and want to get involved in the work Feeding America is doing to address equity and food insecurity, visit feedingamerica.org backslash act. Don't forget, share the show with others and be sure to subscribe so that you can get new episodes as soon as they're available. I'm Amy McReynolds, and I look forward to continuing our equity journey together in the next episode.